Goldbug and Blaster demonstrate why mom made you get a booster shot as a kid. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. From now on, you do as I do, okay? Hello and welcome to Back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. Our comic this time around is The Transformers number 29, which came out on March 17, 1987 and had a June cover date with a price of $1. The cover is by Bob Budiansky and shows the head of Blaster looking nearly dead while small bug-like robots climb all about him. The cover copy reads, Scrapped by the Scraplets. And introducing the Triple Changers! It's definitely a suspenseful cover, especially considering that if you've been following the book, you know that Blaster and Goldbug have had some problems in the last issue or two, especially since they've struck out on their own from Grimlock and the other Autobots. So you get a continuation of a story involving two characters you know and like, plus what looks like the introduction of new characters. It's definitely effective and honestly is also very Marvel. So let's get into the issue. Our title is Crater Critters, which is rendered in a futuristic, or at least what in the 1980s looked like a futuristic typeface. And our creative team is as follows. Bob Budiansky, writer. Don Perlin, breakdowns. Ian Aiken and Brian Garvey, finishes. Janice Chang, letterer. Nell Yamtov, colorist. Don Daly, editor. And Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief. I'm reading it out of the IDW Transformers Classics trade. That is, as of at least when I started putting this podcast together still available on Comixology, which has an editorial note that reads the following. Throughout half this issue, Goldbug, the quote modernized form of Bumblebee and Autobot Throttlebot released in 1987, is rendered essentially as if he possessed Bumblebee's body, which is an Autobot minicar released in 1984, with Goldbug's head only. Goldbug was finally changed into his proper robot mode in the latter half of this issue. We open in the desert of the American Southwest, where a large meteor falls and crashes. A robot crawls from the wreckage saying that he must get help, but then is dragged back into the crater by something unknown, and all we see is what looks like a hex nut jump out and land on the ground. The next evening in Portland, Oregon, Goldbug and Blaster stake out a restaurant where GB Blackrock is coming out with a date. Goldbug quietly approaches the millionaire and asks to talk to him. Blackrock tries to blow him off, but Goldbug slowly places himself on the man's foot, and then he decides to have Goldbug drive him and his date home. His date, Felicia, isn't happy and more or less storms off into her apartment building. Bye, Felicia. Blackrock then drives the Autobots to one of his gas stations and fills up Goldbug's tank. They then explain to him that they have left the rest of the Autobots and need his help. 
Blackrock wants to know why he should believe them, and Blaster explains that back on Cybertron, he and his partner Scrounge were Decepticon hunters, and Scrounge died in one of the smelting pots pools. A story that, according to an editorial note, was shown in issue 17 of the series. Blaster, obviously angry and upset over his former partner's death, tells Goldbug that he won't let that happen, and then they ask Blackrock where they can find the Decepticons. Blackrock mentions that a large meteor has crashed in northwest Arizona and seems to be sending out radio signals, so the Autobots decide to head there and transform and roll out. Later on, on Cybertron, Ratbat, who is still the Decepticon fuel auditor, meets with the Triple Changers, Astrotrain, Blitzwing, and Octane, to tell them that he has sent a low-energy-cost space freighter to Earth, and while it did arrive, he hasn't heard back from the pilot, so he's sending them there to check it out. They take the space bridge to Arizona and interrupt a research team that is investigating the meteor site. After scaring off the humans, they come upon the pilot, who is severely beat up, and pleads with them to stay away. However, they ignore him, and Astrotrain takes a step forward, only to have something attacking his foot. A few hours later, nearby, the research team, having left the site because they think that the Triple Changers were a National Guard unit, try to figure out what's going on, and are approached by Goldbug and Blaster, who transform and say they are here to help the humans. One of the people, Mr. Fong hops into Goldbug, gets past the checkpoint set up by the actual National Guard, and they head to the crater. One of the small robots, which obviously are the scraplets mentioned on the cover, sees the two of them and says, Mmm, we see robots. The Autobots also see robots, however, and are just attacked by the Decepticons. A fight ensues and Dr. Fong is thrown into the crater, but he's saved by Goldbug, who puts him down into the crater only to find a spaceship. They also find the Decepticon pilot, who tells them that there was a fr- he was a freighter pilot and he had stopped to do minor repair work at one point after passing through a space cloud, but the space cloud was actually the Scraplets and they have been feeding on him ever since. He warns them to stay away, but the Scraplets attack, with both Goldbug and Mr. Fong fending them off as best they can. Meanwhile, at the top of the crater, Blaster fights the Triple Changers, but they change from plane to automobile and start blasting him. The fight gets noticed by the National Guard and the scientists, and the same National Guardsmen who let Fong through the checkpoint tell Dr. Huddleston, who was in charge of the team, that he can't that they can't do anything about it. Blaster manages to get the upper hand to a certain extent by collapsing on the side of the crater and sending them to the bottom. Blaster falls down, too, and gets infected by the Scraplets, just as the Triple Changers tell them what the Scraplets are, which are essentially the deadliest disease known to mechanical life forms in the galaxy. Blaster notices that the Decepticons are weaker than he is and radios Goldbug for help. When the weakened Autobot decides to make a move on his Decepticon captors, he pleads for Goldbug's help, but Goldbug decides to take off. Blaster, believing Goldbug a coward, vows to come after him. Goldbug and Fong, whose first name is Charlie, escape, but not before Goldbug is infected by Scraplets. Their mission is to find a cure, and it doesn't look good by the end, because Goldbug looks rusted out, and they are in the middle of nowhere. Now, I'm pretty sure that 30 years ago, I didn't notice that Goldbug was drawn like Bumblebee throughout the issue. Although I'm sure that there were people who noticed it because, well, I mean, there's a new Titans annual that has an art shift at a certain point, and the art shift is... When the art shift, Nightwing's costume shifts. So I can certainly say there were probably people writing into the comic to point out the error. Being that it was Marvel, they were probably trying to no-prize it, too. Now, as for the story, I do like seeing the Goldbug Blaster plot because I thought it was more interesting than watching Grimlock grunt his way through leading the Autobots. Plus, we get to see more of my favorite plot point, Ratbat auditing everything like and being the Bill Lumberg of the Decepticons. Hello, Peter. 
What's happening? Uh, we have sort of a problem here. Yeah, you apparently didn't put one of the new cover sheets on your TPS reports. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry about that. I, I forgot. Mm, yeah. You see, we're putting the cover sheets on all TPS reports now before they go out. Did you see the memo about this? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I have the memo right here. I just, uh, forgot. But, uh, it's not shipping out till tomorrow, so there's no problem. Yeah. If you could just go ahead and make sure you do that from now on, that would be great. And, uh, I'll go ahead and make sure you get another copy of that memo. Okay? Yeah, no, I, I, I have the memo. I've got it. It's right. The idea that the scraplets are a disease that rots the Transformers the same way that a degenerative disease does this to humans is a really good concept. Although my research shows that the only times the scraplets are used in the original Marvel series at all is in this issue and the next issue. Granted, they probably were only created for this two-parter, and there were other long-running plots and subplots going on that didn't need anything added to them. But it would have been cool to have this become its own storyline, kind of a cut-off from Cybertron, the Decepticons and Autobots have to work together to find a cure type of thing. And I haven't read ahead, so I honestly don't know what the cure that Goldbug and Charlie are looking for is, but the ending was suspenseful enough for me to find out. Granted, how many times am I going to see... Bumblebee or Goldbug, or whatever they're calling him at the time, possibly die. The Triple Changers, by the way, were toys that premiered in 1985 and 1986. The three Decepticons that are in the story were the first Triple Changers, and they were soon followed by three Autobots, Broadside, Sandstorm, and Springer. The concept was that they could change into three forms instead of two, a land vehicle, a plane, and a robot. So this issue partially continues the Goldbug Blaster storyline, but also places some more toys into the comic. And at least you have Ratbat sending them from Cybertron as a way to get them into the story that isn't as contrived as it could possibly be. Don Perlin does a very good job getting the action across, which is important because the scene with the triple changers fighting the Autobots while also dealing with the Scraplets has to carry the issue. And furthermore, the effect of the Scraplets is illustrated really well, and that's really important when you think about it, because it's going to be a huge part of the storyline and is a cliffhanger between the two issues. While Perlin makes the Scraplets essentially look like bugs on the level of ticks or fleas, he also makes the damage they do look like rust and decay. And you know, I like how he also makes the freighter pilot look like a generic robot instead of one of the actual toys or something because a Transformers freighter pilot would probably look pretty generic. Budiansky, by the way, puts a lot into this issue. Just like the two I've already looked at, there aren't many splash pages or glory shots. Everything is well-paced. And as I've said in the past, I don't know much about Blackrock as a character in the Transformers. Based on the little I've read, I've gathered that he's an oil company mogul and an ally of sorts to the Transformers, especially the Autobots. So his use as a way to move the plot along here actually makes sense and works pretty well. Plus, the scene where they interrupt his date to get him to ditch the stretch limo and ride in Goldbug is pretty cute, just as I still find the Ratbat bits funny in their own way. Overall, I've been enjoying these Transformers issues way more than I thought I would. I figured they'd be kind of something like I needed to get through on my way to G.I. Joe issues that I really love or some of the few really good Spider-Man comics that I've got coming up. But just like the G.I. Joe comics, the Transformers are story-driven with solid character beats. So I look forward to seeing where all of this goes. 
And that'll just about do it for Transformers number 29. I'm going to take a break, and I'll be right back. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spotlight, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their backroll year one work, Brian Q. Miller on his backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the backroll spoiled the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. So this is a place where I usually do my reflections of life or share some memories of what happened to me at the time. Now, as much as I do enjoy that, the downside to that is that as the episodes get more frequent, I honestly start to run out of things to talk about. There's only so many memories you have when you're 10, right? I've talked about Top Gun before, but I was looking at uh, what was going on in popular culture this month, and on March 11th, 87, Top Gun did come out on video. Now, this is a pretty big deal, not just because it was a movie that was made huge the previous year, but because it was one of the first movies that a lot of people I knew owned because it was released at a price much lower than most movies and had been that had been given VHS releases. I'm not the only person who's pointed this out before, but back in the mid-1980s, if you were going to buy a movie that came out of video, you were probably going to wind up paying $70 or $80 for it. They weren't cheap, and from what I understand, that was the major reason that most mom-and-pop video stores only had one or maybe two copies of a movie. Well, Top Gun was released for 20 bucks, and in that price range, and that meant that people could actually buy it, and that was a big deal back in 1987. My dad had been a pretty early adopter of VHS, and buying movies having joined what was then known as the CBS Video Club, but eventually would be folded into Columbia House back in 1986. So we had a bunch of movies by that time, including the first four Star Trek movies. But even to me, getting Top Gun was a pretty big deal. I don't think I got the movie right when it came out. Uh, More than likely, my parents bought it for me and then gave it to me for my 10th birthday. But I remember watching it in more than one's friend's house, as if we were all taking turns renting it from the video store. It was a hell of a videotape, too. It started with all things a Diet Pepsi commercial, which is one of those hugely expensive commercials that was created to tie into something bigger in some way. And it features a pilot trying to get a bottle of Diet Pepsi out of his plane's drink holder, you know, as you do. And when it gets jammed, he turns the plane upside down in order to pour the soda into the cup. It's completely cheesy, but I don't think I ever skipped it when I would watch the video. This is X-ray Tangle, one, two, seven. We're at Angels 11, bearing zero, nine, zero, over. 
Nice going, Mustang. Maneuvers completed. Relax and uh, have one more day. Roger, dead mother. Great. Problem, Mustang. No problem. Trouble with your refreshment system? Uh, negative. But then you've got the actual movie, which was everything you wanted out of a movie about Navy pilots when you were 10 years old. There was some great stunt work and dogfighting scenes, some really funny dialogue, and just enough foul language that your parents would let you watch it, and you could get away with saying on the playground out of earshot of the teachers or the teacher's aides when you were out for recess. Speaking of which, this is the big thing my friend DJ and I played through so much in our fourth grade year. Like I've said this before, we get on the swings at lunch, we pretend we were F-14s, we go after bogeys for the better part of 20 minutes. I think he was Maverick and I was Goose, although we may have switched things around from time to time. Basically, all it was the two of us swinging on the swings and saying Top Gun dialogue to one another. Which is quite possibly the most simple thing for two fourth graders to do, and this obviously makes this segment sound more like it's the onion on my belt portion of this of this podcast, especially since I've kind of already told this story. But we ran around like freaking crazy on the playground when we were kids. We weren't swing on swings and playing Top Gun, that is. It was all about playing pretend a lot of times, like within your favorite movies. I've seen a meme passed around on Facebook over the years that shows kids from the 70s or 80s with some sort of bike or big wheel and basically points out that today's kids spend all their time indoors or on their phones and don't go out and play anymore or use their imaginations anymore. Get off my lawn, you know. Now, I realize I'm arguing with a meme. (laughs) But while I understand the current generation of kids has a lot more technology than we did or at least had it at an earlier age than we did, and Amanda and I do find ourselves working on making sure our son isn't completely overloaded with screen time, I can also definitely tell you that for the 9 and 10-year-olds who are out there, at least the idea of getting out and going to see your friends around the block and coming home when it's time for dinner, it still goes on. I mean, he'll come home and be a sweaty, smelly mess after having played with, like, Nerf guns or running around in the woods behind the house, but he also tells me how he and his friends play in the playground at school, and it's honestly heartening because for all the pissing and moaning that people do about the disappearance of childhood, it actually still is there. And I know I'm in my suburban community bubble, and I'm lucky to have found a place where he can have experiences like that. So, you know, take it what it, take this for what it is. Although this is not where I was thinking that I was going to be taking a short talk about the release of Top Gun on VHS, a video rep- tape that I replaced uh, fairly recently because I found it on Blu-ray really, really cheap. So um, I had that thing for years. But I had to replace my lost copy of the comic for our next episode, which is going to be in two whole days. That's right, because not all comics came out on the same day back in 1987. So I'm going to be doing an episode today and an episode two days later. And that book, The Adventures of Superman number 429. So I'll see you in a couple of days for that. Until then, please go to the Facebook page for Pop Culture Affidavit and leave a comment. Leave a comment on the show notes. Or you can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. And I will talk to you in a couple of days. Thanks for listening and take care.